This is Down the Wormhole, Episode 1, recorded Saturday, September 23rd, 2017. My name is Joshua Weinberg. I'm Zachary Miller, and welcome to Down the Wormhole. Today we are joined by our special guest, Mr. Michael Bertinsky. Mike, you're a student here at Rowan University. Yes, yes I am, and I'd just like to say thank you for having me on today. Yes, and uh, the you're a mechanical engineer here, yes? That's what they keep telling me, yes. Yeah, uh, me too. <laughs> and uh, why should I care about what you have to say today? Uh, well, as I said, I'm a mechanical engineering student here at Rowan University, and uh, following uh, my my education, my tenure here, I plan to uh, pursue a doctorate in nuclear engineering. Or uh, failing that, I hear McDonald's is hiring. Ah, that sounds that sounds like good lofty goals. Yeah, yeah you always have to have a backup plan, right? right. Uh, today we wanted to talk about some uh, nuclear tests from history. Um, Specifically, the uh, accidental nuclear space gun. Ah, yes. Take uh, it away. Yes. Yes. Uh, so we're gonna we're just gonna have Mike here just uh, tell us the story, and then we're gonna talk about it a little bit. Cool. Now this is a write up of uh, the story I did after I did some uh, research, so I'll I'll just dive right in. During the 1950s, when the U.S. was conducting nuclear tests at the Nevada test site, there was one test that had a very unexpected outcome. As part of Operation Plumbomb in August of 1957, a very small yield nuclear device, equivalent to 500 tons of TNT, was placed at the bottom of a 500-foot deep, four-foot diameter shaft drilled into the desert ground. The objective was to investigate ways of containing uh, future larger underground nuclear tests. The test in question was known as Pascal B. In this test, a concrete plug a few feet, excuse me, a few feet thick was placed directly above the device in the shaft and a four inch thick steel plate, again, four feet in diameter, weighing several hundred pounds, was secured over the end of the shaft at the surface. The engineers knew that the plate would be blown off when the device detonated, but they didn't know how fast it would be, so they pointed a high speed camera at the top of the test shaft. When the device detonated, the plate simply vanished. The engineers looked everywhere, but couldn't find it. Then, they looked at the high-speed camera footage. The steel plate appeared in exactly one frame of the footage. They therefore could not calculate the exact velocity, but could calculate a lower bound as to how fast the plate was going. This lower bound for the speed of the plate was calculated to be six times the escape velocity of Earth. <laughs> or approximately, I believe, uh, 40, 41 kilometers per second. <laughs> okay. <laughs> they realized the blast wave from the explosion could not possibly have made this plate fly off at that speed. The blast wave simply wasn't fast enough. What had happened was something even more fantastic. The concrete plug placed directly above the nuclear device acted much like the propellant on a rifle cartridge. With this new theory, the engineers did some more calculations. 
At the temperatures and pressures achieved by the nuclear explosion, the concrete plug could be assumed to behave like a gas. <laughs> <laughs> now, I just want to I just want to cut in for a second and just point out when he says concrete gas, he means like you take an ice cube and you melt it into water and you let it go any further and it turns into vapor, water vapor. Now, do that with a big chunk of concrete. I think it means get it hot enough to not only melt, but skip directly from the solid to the gas phase. The, the, the concrete was sublimated. Directly into a gas, and when something does that, it expands, uh, to say the least, dramatically. It should also be noted that this is taking place in the space of microseconds. That, too, oh. that, that also helps to uh, say like what this thing is kind of doing. So... They now have this concrete gas, and they can therefore apply the following equation. U is equal to 2C divided by gamma minus 1, where U is the velocity of the gas, C is the speed of sound in the gas, and gamma is the specific heat ratio of the gas. Basically, what that, what that means is really, really freaking fast. We're getting there. Yeah. So, with the, with the equation... This equation backed up the conclusions from the high-speed camera, but what happened to the plate? Here is a quote from astrophysicist Bob Brownlee, who is part of the test team and from the source. Quote, We never found it. It was gone, Brownlee says, a touch of awe in his voice almost 35 years later. The following October, the Soviet Union launched Sputnik, billed as the first man-made object in Earth orbit. Brownlee has never publicly challenged the Soviets' claims, but he has his doubts. So, the steel plate traveling that quickly, vertically, it had to hit experience a lot of, a lot of air friction. You know, yes, we have we have ablative tiles on the space shuttle so it doesn't blow up pretty much burn from the up burn up nothing. in the heat. So, is it actually possible that this plate didn't just burn up in the atmosphere on its ascent? Well, um, I don't know. I'd probably have to be like an engineer to uh, answer a question like that with certainty. However, there are two possibilities. The, the more likely, and the, the, the engineers and scientists uh, working in Operation Plumbop agreed with this, and that is that it's most likely that the air friction simply burned up the multi-hundred-pound steel plate traveling six times the escape <laughs> velocity of Earth. So it, it, it went, I say, I, I say hesitantly, up. And it just sort of went yes. up and disappeared. And the air friction just caused it to disappear, burn, burn essentially. Away. It just burn, burn away into some kind of steel gas. Yeah, so of course, we're dealing with concrete gas, <laughs> and now steel gas. Yes. So what is the viability of using concrete, sublimated concrete as a fuel. Well... <laughs> Consider you need a nuclear weapon as a primer. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't... If somebody approached you uh, saying they have this great idea for that and they need some startup money, I would not give them that money. <laughs> um, okay. It's, it's, it's very impractical as, as a propulsion <laughs> source like that. It, interest, interestingly, there was... There was a, a plan called Project Orion to uh, make a spaceship that would drop nukes out the back of it and they'd detonate and just push it along. How'd that um, go? Uh, they, 
they were working on it until they ran ran into a wall. Oh yeah, what 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 what, what might that have been? Reality, science, engineering. <laughs> Pick, uh, pick any of them, and they, you know the whole well, dropping a nuke out the back of a spaceship. They, they were able to vaporize yeah. it, type of thing. I mean, yeah, the the fair. weights the weights involved necessary to get the spaceship into orbit was impossible. Ow. The uh, the material <laughs> the materials necessary to create a shield withstanding nuclear detonations one after another yeah. for potentially months on end was impossible. I see. So it, it was never really pursued as a practical idea. I remember seeing it. I don't remember what show it was. Maybe Nova, something, something Nova like. Um, and they were going over that, and they it was uh, an episode about really fast spacecraft, and that was on there. And it, they calculated out it would go like ten percent the speed of light at max yes. speed, though. Yes, it, it is. It is very possible to do that uh, as you as you. You know, fire weapons out the back, and uh, they're detonating, pushing you faster and faster. You can keep going theoretically until you're getting to ten percent the speed of light. However, the issue is, um, and this was noted by the head head uh, engineer on the project, and that was it's not so much accelerating to that fast; it's really slowing down <laughs> in any appreciable amount of time without yeah. turning everyone inside to a paste. Uh, of, you know, goo. Yes, just just goo. You do generally want your astronauts to survive. Yes, uh, unless <laughs> unless you're the Soviet Union, in which case, yeah, it's that's about like fifth on the list. <laughs> I mean, the, I mean, if you can get the chunk of metal into orbit, that's like number one. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah. Then shouldn't they have beaten? Uh, then shouldn't they have beaten us to the uh, nuclear gun? <laughs> we don't know. <laughs> we, we we don't know. They they've still kept their records pretty locked up tight <laughs> on the the nuclear side of things. Um, so again, back to the nuclear gun. Were they ever able to calculate a higher end speed, or were they only physically able to calculate the lower end? Well, it's it, it was really only physically possible uh, for them to calculate a lower speed because if you can think about the, the high speed camera, they're they're really looking at uh, two frames, and that was the last frame that this plate is sitting on top of that hole, and then the the frame immediately after that is it in the air, and what they were hoping to see was the plate still in frame at, at the next at the next uh, increment, mm -hmm. so they can you know, calculate the distance, divide it by the the, the time between each uh, exposure of the camera, and then you'd get the speed. However, they only got it in flight on one frame, so they can only calculate the lower bounds. So they're looking at it. All right, what happens if the plate started moving the exact moment after? the last uh, frame where it's on the hole. And they divided the distance by the by the time, and they got a, uh, just under Mach 200. Oh! Jesus! Yes. Or about six, 67,000 meters per second. Wow! These are just, these are speeds that we just can't even comprehend. You can Jesus. really not comprehend them. All we know is that they're and also, Fast. and also theoretically that gas doesn't necessarily have to be done expanding it could have still been accelerating it's it's possible yeah we, I mean, we the, really the, the don't rush know. out of we that can, hole is probably insane we can we we won't know yeah. it only appeared in that one frame in flight oh. and that's lower bound for all we know it uh is in space it started accelerating it started accelerating precisely before the the frame where it appeared in flight and it was actually going Mach 1000. We don't know. <laughs> <laughs> we, we don't know. Yeah. 
So, about the shaft as well, did anything happen in the shaft? Because, I mean, if it's in a plate accelerating that fast upward, what did it do downward? Well, th there, there wasn't nearly anything as spectacular that happened uh, underground. What happens when a, when a nuclear weapon goes off underground is it creates a cavity, and depending on several factors, it will either stay a uh, cavity underground or it will collapse into a bowl on the surface. Mm -hmm. Uh, in this case, it, it it's a small little guy, you know, only only five hundred tons of only. TNT equivalent. So yeah, yeah. no big so deal. So just a s small cavity underground, and uh, yeah, that's that's about it. This specific one didn't collapse in. Not not that I'm aware of. Okay, it's, it wasn't big enough for that. So, Mike, are there any questions to answers that you already know that we could ask you? What? One more question. What is your personal opinion? Did, did we beat the Russians to space? Well, as an engineer, uh, I'd say it's very unlikely. However, as an American, hell yeah, we beat them. So, Mike, are there any other particularly interesting nuclear tests that you wanted to talk about today? So, like, for instance, what was the, what was the first one, the largest one, stuff like that? Well, well, the first one is, is pretty famous. It was known as the Trinity Test. It took place in July 1945, uh, during World War II, right at the end of the war, and it took place in Alamogordo, New Mexico. Mm. I finally got that right. <laughs> Alamogordo. <laughs> there we go. Um, and anything interesting happened from that test? Well, um, well, from the point of view of the scientists, uh, the most interesting thing that happened is it worked. <laughs> Um, they, yeah. You know, there, there were there was a wide range of speculation of what could happen. Anything from it won't work to it will work to it's going to detonate the atmosphere hmm. and kill everyone oh. on the planet. Well, that's that, yeah, that's a reasonable risk to take, I yeah, guess. There, when there you're was, trying to win the war, you know, might as well. Well, there was a running betting pool, and for the people betting on ending the world, I don't quite know how they were expecting to collect on that if they were right, but uh, it's something to think. About. Uh, huh, and didn't that test create green glass around where it was? Yeah, so in the, the desert sand there, when this thing heats up to you know, several times the temperature of the, uh, the sun, um, it fused the, the sand, you know, silica, into glass. However, it also contained fission products, so... Uh, very you, radioactive you can, glass. Yes, you can, not very radioactive, but... It, you probably wouldn't want to keep it in your pocket. I mean, can you get a piece of it? Yes, yes, you can. Um, I, I'm not huh. particularly sure how easy it is to get, but uh, you can get a piece of it, and it's this green-looking glass, and if you hold a Geiger counter up to it, um, it'll start going off. Cool. And uh, cool. next on there, what was the biggest? The biggest was, uh, was done by the Soviet Union. Uh, it was called the SAR bomb, and what this was was... Uh, it was a 50, the yield was disputed, but approximately a 50 megaton air-delivered uh, hydrogen device. And, uh, device. Yes. And I, I, I'd hesitate to call it a bomb because this thing was so large to, as to not be practical as a deliverable weapon. So I'm going to call it a device. Um, uh, it was 50 megatons, so 50 million tons of TNT equivalent. And this was a one-half scale of the actual design. Wow. Yeah, wow. A uh, <laughs> hundred million pounds of tons. 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 Tons of tons. That's the third of time I've done that. Yeah, yes. And, 
you know, we, we don't know what would have happened if they had set that off. Um, probably nothing good. But <laughs> That's a good bet, I think. I that think was a good bet, yeah. That's a solid bet. That's not... It's, that's the... That, that always comes back to the old adage, the best weapon is not a weapon you never have to use, it's a weapon that you only ever have to use once. That's that's from Iron Man. I know. <laughs> well, I think Iron Man may have been inspired by this massive, ridiculous, insane weapon. That's, that's fair. Um, are there any other interesting tests you'd like to go into? So, I mean... By by the by the early nineteen sixties, right before the uh, there was a ban put in place of atmospheric testing, uh, the the military was pretty much just kind of. Uh, it it sounds to me like when they when they say ban of atmospheric testing, that sounds like it was pretty vague, and all the all those who were wanting to do their nuclear testing just went on with it. However. Well, the, by to, saying, to oh, it's extent. not what, atmospheric. What they, what they mean by uh, what they mean by uh, atmospheric testing is ab- above ground, in you know, in space, underwater. So really, all that was not banned by the partial test ban treaty was underground testing. You know, digging a really deep hole, sticking something down there, blowing it up, and seeing what happens. Precisely, like, like the nuclear gun. Like the nuclear gun. Yes. <clears throat> And um, before this treaty enacted, was there any inter- any like really cool ones? Uh, well, as I was saying, you know, by by 1962, the treaty was uh, uh, signed in 1963. So in, in 62, the the military was kind of uh, to an extent just kind of they were they throwing were everything at the wall, throwing everything at it, it precisely. They were just trying. Oh well, what happens if we do this? And one of them was sticking a nuke on top of a rocket, shooting into space, and seeing if it ignited the atmosphere. And, was, and I think I've heard about this oh. one. And the, when you say they stuck it on a rocket and sent it into space to see what would happen, that's more or less all they did. Yes, like, that, that you're, is you're it. talking to this to, to to us about this before the show, and I think the term the term you used was. Pitifully prepared, or something to that effect. Yes, the the rockets they used in the uh, 1962 tests were very unreliable. Uh, over over two two specific tests that they attempted, uh, one of them they launched uh, four times before they got it right, and the other one failed uh, only once, which was considered a very high success rate for that particular rocket. Um, it should be noted that each time it failed, um, the range safety officer would detonate the rocket, not not the weapon, the rocket, and uh, spread radioactive material over a large swath of the ocean in the Pacific. But, but you know, it's it's in the middle of the ocean, so yeah, this whatever. Is, this is 1962, um, and quite frankly, no one gave a crap. That <laughs> <laughs> eh, sounds to, sounds about right. Yes, you were telling us about a test that essentially EMP'd Hawaii. Yes. And, and sorry, before you get into it, the term EMP stands for electromagnetic pulse. And when a nuclear device is detonated, it causes a electromagnetic pulse, which induces a large current in any unprotected electronic devices, essentially destroying them. Right. Yes. Sorry, continue. And, and and this was observed multiple times over the years uh, from uh, high altitude nuclear tests, but the particularly the one in 1962 known as Starfish Prime 
This was launched about 13, uh, into space about 1,300 miles south southwest of Hawaii from Johnston Atoll, and it detonated 77 kilometers, excuse me, 400 kilometers into space. And immediately in Hawaii, they observed uh, an aurora borealis, which is usually only seen near the north and south poles. Yeah, the magnetic poles. Precisely, yeah, from, from charged particles. And uh, almost immediately, uh, streetlights... Exploded? Exploded. Yeah. Uh, fuse box, fuses blew. Um, burglar alarms went off. More or less, everything went to crap. Yes. Really every, everything electronic just blew. Yes, and the, the most serious thing was that the air traffic control system went down for an insignificant amount of time uh, in Hawaii. And it re resulted in aircraft being forced to land and operate the... How did you put it, Josh? The old-fashioned way, as in without radio, no, no radar-assisted instruments, no. You're basically at that point you're flying it like like you'd fly a little Cessna. You've got your airspeed, and you know if you're standing upright, and you know how high you are, and that's about it. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I guess I guess if you're operating a commercial airspace with flights from pretty much everywhere, that's. That's not something you want to be dealing with. No, yeah. it's generally good to have the information from the air traffic controllers about where the other planes are. But since the air traffic controllers couldn't see their radars because they were screwed up and they couldn't talk to the planes anyway, it's amazing that there weren't more now, accidents. No, I, I can't. I can't. Uh, I can't directly say what the what the response of the of the Navy, the Air Force, and the general military was to. The effects of the test, but I, I can only assume it was something along the lines of, "Wow, that sucks." <laughs> <laughs> so they, they more or less just left them to their own devices to clean up the mess. Yeah, it was. Wow. It was pretty much. Uh, oops. Sounds like the '60s. It was more of an oops. Yeah. Sorry. With their apparent massive budget, you think they could have done something? Ma yeah. Yeah. Well, they were like, "Well, we could, we could, uh, we could spend some money to figure out what happened, try to fix it, stop it from happening." Or we could try it again and see what happens this time. And that's precisely what they did. Uh, about 11 days later, they attempted another one. Where and, are they getting uh, all these nukes? At this, at this point, uh, we had adapted the uh, mass production, uh, interchangeable parts, Henry Ford production line process, the nuclear weapons. Perfect. Yes, yeah. and we were producing them by the thousands. Most of those are, are have been decommissioned. Most of them, yes. Yeah. Okay. yeah. I mean, we still have enough to annihilate the world a couple hundred times over. Um, I know other things that release from a nuclear bomb are charged particles. Did that have any effect on the atmosphere, or what did they do? Oh, oh, yes. Um, now, around this time was uh, the first satellite launched by the United States, uh, Explorer One. And they discovered what are known as the Van Allen radiation belts, named after the man who uh, designed the experiment. And it's what what those are is just a band of charged particles trapped in the Earth's magnetic field, and they're responsible for the uh, aurora borealis that you see near the poles, the magnetic poles. Mm -hmm. And uh, what we found from the tests was that a nuclear bomb releases massive amounts of charged particles, and they experienced the same thing. They got trapped in the magnetic field. 
and created artificial radiation belts. And in 1962, very, very oh yes, yes, they destroyed uh, several satellites. Uh, wow. I just, just by the satellites they, going through them? They went through the radiation belt and they were damaged beyond anything that we could repair. And this included, wow. this included the world's first telecommunications satellite, Telstar 1. It only, it only lasted, I believe, about six months before it, it shut down permanently. Passed through a radiation belt and yeah. never heard from it again. It went. Yes, I believe that is the technical <laughs> that's term. That's the technical term yeah, for it. Just, that's, the, that's the whole thing. So, as a last little wrap-up, are there any other interesting experiments with nuclear devices you'd like to share? Well, I'd, I'd just like to briefly say that it, the, whole, the whole period, 1945 to 62, is just fascinating in all aspects because it was really when engineering and science took what they had and ran wild, particularly with nuclear testing. And you, you run into such things as, and this is just one example, the plan to excavate an artificial harbor in Alaska using five simultaneously detonated nuclear weapons. And they thought this was a good idea? It, it was a good idea up until reality kind of set in. <laughs> oh, and, uh, that, that usually puts a damper on things. That, generally. that usually we, we find that a lot with our own projects. Yes. Mm. Um... And, you know, they didn't realize that, like, uh, they, they didn't think that fallout would be a problem. Well, they actually put quite a bit of effort into developing what they called clean nuclear weapons, in which yeah, they try okay. to they try to uh, use as much of the fizzle material in the bomb as possible uh, in the reaction. A really efficient nuclear Re weapon. Uh, precisely. So it doesn't send out any... How'd that, go, how'd that go for them? Well, they got as high as about 70%. And That's not enough. That's, yeah. Still about, you know, 30% 30, 30 of radioactive is still radioactive. Yeah. So they they realized it was a poor idea and it was canceled. Huh? All right. Uh, so that will be it for our first episode of Down the Wormhole. Once again, my name is Joshua Weinberg. Zachary Miller and Mike Bertinsky. Thanks for coming on, Mike. Thank, Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, thanks, Mike. This is a good, this is a good show. This episode brought to you by possibly a legal refreshment truck for all your partying, snacking, and drinking non-alcoholic needs. Please visit the possibly illegal refreshment truck found anywhere behind the school after midnight. We got shut down.